This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. And we are wrapping up a full year in which we've been looking at the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. And now we're up to the book of Revelation. This is our second of four weeks we're spending on Revelation. It's not Revelations, by the way. That's right. Did you know that little tip there? I mean, it's Revelation. Every every pastor in their lead up to study Revelation or preach on Revelation, it's the it's the first thing they all. We waited for week two. Does that make us uh, dumber or smarter? It makes us better. Okay, so this is uh, week two out of four weeks, and uh, we're we're better than something. Uh, and in a rim, we want to remind you that we're not going to be able to cover all of it. If you want to get a little more context, you can listen to the sermons that we're releasing as part of this as well. Even then, not all of it. There's a lot to cover. Well, well yeah, but if you want to uh, buy me lunch, um, we can start to cover it there. It'll have to be a series of lunches. That's a though. long lunch. That's a lot of lunches. It's a lot of lunch. Oh, it's Re- Revelation with lunches. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It's important to know. All right. So Ben is Ben can be bought, and he can he can walk through Revelations with you over lunches, something like that. Okay. Let's take a look. We're going to look at these. This is a letter that was written to seven churches in Western Turkey, uh, that was known as Asia at the time. And we're up to the second one of those. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, and it's the church in Smyrna. It's a pretty cool name, Smyrna. Did you ever think about naming one of your daughters Smyrna instead of what you named your daughters that didn't come up for debate? It did not. Okay. It did Just not. Just curious if you wanted that and Sherry voted you down. I did work with a Myrna at one point, but oh, not, really? a, not a, yeah, she, yeah. Myrna? Yeah, but never a Smyrna. All right, well, maybe she was from Smyrna. So to the angel, it says in verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again, Jesus. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, brother, uh, what's going on in good old Smyrna? Uh, the church is being persecuted. Um, one of the things that, that Jesus says, uh, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Um, one of the ways I read that is that the, the true uh, people of Israel would have been those, and, and we see this in Scripture where there's a distinction drawn between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. And so I see this as a, a reference to those who had rejected Christ and in rejecting Christ had persecuted the followers of uh, Jesus Christ. Um, and so I think of the religious leaders that I, I believe Jesus is referring to here as being a part of the synagogue of, uh, of Satan. 
But we see the the people in Smyrna, we see their faithfulness and the presence of persecution, which was a hallmark of the church in Smyrna. One of the most notable uh, members of the church in Smyrna uh, was a guy by the name of Polycarp, who uh, in the second century, in about 155 AD, uh, was burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ. And um, it had been recorded that as he was uh about to be burned that he uh that he had cried out in prayer and he said lord sovereign god i thank you i thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs i may have a share in the cup of christ for this i bless and glorify uh you amen and so uh you know uh for 50 years after mm-hmm. uh, the writing of this the the folks in smyrna had uh had been had had to suffer and endure persistent persecution, and yet uh, throughout that time we see a church that was resolute and faithful uh, to the risen Christ, entrusting themselves to the promise of eternal life, and knowing, uh, living with that certainty of what was to come or what is to come, living in that certainty, they were set free uh, to suffer and to endure and to persevere. Um, even in the face of uh, of impending death. Yeah, they're they're given this great promise that even if they do that to death, uh, the Lord says, "I will give you life as your victor's crown." One of the things that Smyrna was known for was its athletic games, and the winners would receive a wreath on their head, a crown on their head, for their victorious efforts, and it was strong imagery for them to say you'll be the champion, not because you're the first one across the line, but maybe because you're the last. I mean, even your suffering, your persecution, maybe even to the point of death, but your crown is going to come in heaven. It's a really good message for all of us that there are incredible blessings to living the Christian faith in this life, on this earth. And I, I would not give that up for anything but it has nothing compared to what's coming. That victor's crown, that eternal life that's coming, that glorious picture that is coming, our lives in Christ should not be based upon whether we are liked or disliked or, or, or um, blessed or persecuted on this earth, but it's all about what he does for us. Let's m- move on because we have so much to cover today to the next church. It's the church in Pergamum. And it says here in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Ooh, that's a nasty neighborhood. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, nor even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. All right, now, wait a minute. That two times in this, in this little couple verses saying that where you live is where Satan has his throne and your city is where Satan lives. I mean, Pergamum must have been a, a messed up city. I, I know that they were really into their scholarly view of life. They had a huge library with a couple hundred thousand volumes in it. 
idolatry was everywhere. It was kind of like the headquarters of where people would go for for their views uh, of Zeus and Dionysius and Athene and Asclepius. Uh, there was a lot happening there, but Jesus calls it where Satan has his throne. Yeah. Uh, what what's what's cooking in Pergamum? Yeah, the the way I I read that it was a a hotbed uh, for paganism as you've described, but it was also uh, one of the the prominent cities of the imperial cult, um, to where you know there was the the worship of Caesar himself that was existent. And so when I when I hear the the words the throne or where Satan lives or in some place some uh, translations might say the throne of Satan. I, I think it's a reference, I believe at least to have been a reference to uh, the imperial cult that existed within Pergamum. And people would travel there um, to express worship, worship to pay homage to, to Caesar. So it's a, it's a choice that people had to make. Am I going to worship the Lord God or am I going to worship the Lord Caesar as the world presents it? And it was not a simple choice for people to make. and there's an acknowledgement here. You, you live right in the heart of that. And you're trying, sometimes I think we believe that we live in a, in a culture where it's hard to live out your Christianity. And you know, there, there are challenges. I'm not at all downplaying that by any means. Every culture has its, its systems and its things that it does, but we got nothing on these guys. <laughs> I mean, they, uh, they had it rough. And so he goes on to say this, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. So you've, you've held firm, but there's some problems. There are some among you in the church who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites, here's the problem, to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols, which we just talked about all these idols around, and committed sexual immorality, which was very much part of this pagan idol worship scene in the Roman Empire. So these folks who uh, loved God and believed in Jesus and were, were now a ways into it. Now, we're like 65 years probably beyond the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So, you know, it's a generation or so past it. And they're staying true to Jesus mostly. But they're caving in on these, these idle views of things, which um, are tempting them to commit sexual immorality and to take p- part in um, pagan worship. Boy, that you know that. I mean, we've been looking at at the Bible from the Gospels to now. And that's a common theme, and of course, next year in the Old Testament. I mean, right out of the gate, you know the the original sin takes place and people just have a hard time staying completely true to Jesus. Um, it's the cycle of sin, which is all throughout the Bible, really over and over and over again. Why is it, why is it so hard to not compromise? You know, there's there there is the obvious the the obvious wrestling with our own depravity uh, that exists. The other the other part here uh, within the context of what the the people in the the followers of Christ were, um, you know, suffering here in the 
uh, in this particular city in Pergamum, um, by engaging in syncretism, by by merging these pagan practices with uh, the relationship to Jesus, it was a way probably for them to escape marginalization and oppression. Um, because even, even, you know, uh, oppression from the, the Roman government by engaging in a p- imperial cultish uh, worship, uh, but also even a lot of trade guilds at this time were linked to yeah. idolatry themselves. And if you weren't giving yourself to the specific idol associated with a trade guild, you didn't get to work. And so uh, confronted by the marginalization, confronted by the persecution itself, coupled with the depraved desire, uh, I believe, led to the syncretism that we see uh, within the church. It's true then and it's true now that we have to decide what will we give ourselves to and which parts of, of the world around us our culture around us, will we say, okay, that takes precedence over what the Bible says, what, what the Lord clearly is, is speaking to me in, in my life. Wow, there's, there's a ton. I wish we had time to unpack there. But I do want to move on because um, I, want, I want to move be, beyond the seven churches in, in our discussion these four weeks and look at some of the other aspects of Revelation a little bit. So the rest of chapter two and three are more of the churches. We'll hit those in the next few weeks. And then after that, we get to some of the strong imagery that's used to talk about this ongoing struggle between good and evil and for the, for the people and and how to live this out. That's in the book of revelation in chapter four. We're not going to look at that today. Um, That's, that's part of one of the the messages coming uh, that your way. So chapter four, is all about the throne in heaven and some imagery is built there that is really helpful that we'll, we'll kind of reference back when we get here to Re- Revelation chapter 5. But that's where I want to head in Revelation chapter 5 right now. And it's about a scroll and the lamb. Let me just jump in in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, the right hand of God, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Seven seals we'll get to next week. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. This is John saying he was weeping as he's having this vision, this revelation from God. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So we have this this scroll, and it's got some things that are written on it. It's sealed up with seven seals, and it's this, this scroll of God. Nobody's worthy. Nobody is worthy 
only there's only one who is worthy, and it's a lion. So work with me through uh, through this little bit. What does it mean that there, there's nobody worthy to open this scroll, but there's a lion that's worthy to open it? There's a lot of imagery, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. There's all kinds of languages going on here. How would this early audience have clearly understood this passage to be referencing? Well, again, re- remembering that this was written to a persecuted church, the it, the imagery itself, I think, would have been an encouragement uh, to them. One, it shows the superiority of Christ as he is the only one that is able to open the scroll. And obviously the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the imagery is born out of uh, the words and in uh, Genesis relative to the, the God's uh, covenantal promise to the, the tribe of Judah from, from which Jesus came. Um, the, other, the other piece of this, though, it's like the, the dual imagery of the lion and then the slain lamb. And one of the encouragements that this would have been, I think, to the, the persecuted church is a reminder to them that Christ himself our 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 living savior triumphed not by force but ultimately he triumphed at the cross and uh and so as as the these followers are enduring again uh, the marginalization the oppression the suffering uh, potentially seeing brothers and sisters in Christ being killed um the call to follow after the ways of Christ is being presented it reminding us, uh, comforting us, encouraging us that Christ himself ultimately proved tri- uh, triumphant, um, not through military force, but by g- yielding himself to the cross. So that's what it means in verse 6, that I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. So, so you got the in verse 5, the lion of Judah, and 6, the slain lamb. Same guy? Same guy. Same guy. So these, like, when we're, when we're writing a story in the modern world, whatever, and, you know, if I, if I were writing a story um, for an English paper in high school or something, it wouldn't make sense, I would think, to have the lion, which is the most fierce creature, and the lamb, one that actually had been slain, to be the same guy, which is, Jesus. So again, this is a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation. Why is all this being used in this kind of way that to your best of your knowledge? I think to fully encapsulate the character and nature of who Jesus is, um, that Jesus is the lion. He is sovereign. He is the ruler. Um, we see the imagery of his return where he will return uh, in, uh, you know, as a mighty conquering King, uh, over the forces uh, of evil, knowing that, uh, his followers, his slain ones, his martyrs, his witnesses, we get the same word, uh, for witness, the same word that gives us martyr is the same word that we get witness, uh, from, but the knowledge that, uh, his slain martyrs will be vindicated. Um, that Christ rules and reigns even as he was the one who was slain. That's, that's a good word. So this goes on to say, it's about Jesus. Only Jesus is worthy. Only he is worthy. Only he is worthy to 
to break the seals on the scroll, yes. Only he is worthy to make us fit for heaven. Only Jesus is worthy to redeem us. It's a strong and powerful message. So this goes on, verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, and then around the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. Now that references back to chapter 4. You have to look on your own, listen to the sermon if you'd like to do that. And these four living creatures, there were four of them. One, one of those creatures that created order was like a lion, which is like the king of the, of the wild animals. And one was like an ox, which is like the most powerful of the tame animals. And one was like a man, which represents humans. One was like an eagle. The eagle is like the, of the sky, the dominant of the sky. I mean, I, I, to me, this is just like imagery that all of creation is in partnership with it. I'm not sure how you, if you look at it that way, but I think it's just imagery to build that, that kind of a scene. And it says, and the elders, and the elders are referenced back to chapter four. There's 24 elders, 12 and 12, the, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament. To me, that's what makes sense. In other words, all of creation and all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament they all come together in this moment with Jesus in, as Jesus is opening up the scroll. Um, if I, if I uh, stepped on any landmines there that, that you want to uh, extract me from? Yeah, we're about to have serious disagreement. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, you're, you're good uh, in any landmines that might exist. We're just going to avoid them. We're going to avoid them. If I'm already stepping on one, you're going down with me. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. And I I wouldn't, again, some people have a tendency to look at the imagery and where they find themselves diverging from another, they would qualify it as a landmine. And yet I'm like, yeah, it's apocalyptic imagery. That's relax. That's, (laughs) that's really a good word. And so they're all together there, the, the lamb and the four living creatures and the elders. And it says, it goes on in verse six, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So Jesus takes it from God. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now there's the proper order right there because the lamb, Jesus, everything in creation, every great leader of old and new falls down in worship before Jesus. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. I want to just camp out on that one for just a little bit. I, I think sometimes, Ben, we, we don't think our prayers get anywhere or aren't heard very much, or, or I'm not sure, I, are not important enough for us to, to pray on a, on a like regular deep basis. But the imagery of this is that all the people that are like, you think the, the great leaders of the faith for all, all time, this imagery at least, in heaven, are holding these bowls and they have incense in them. And what's rising up out of these bowls are all the collected prayers of God's people. 
man, that ought to ramp up your prayer life, shouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think about all the things that keep us uh, from prayer, uh, you know, the barriers that that we put in place or, you know, even the lack of time we spend in prayer or sometimes people think, well, am I phrasing this right? Am I phrasing this wrong? And they're worried about the language they use in, in prayer. And yet we see the beauty of how God receives uh, our prayers. And so I, I read this, and it's it, to your point, it's one of those things that should compel a life of prayer, to know that as our prayers rise to the Lord, that they're greeted as this fragrant incense, right? And that, that's one of those things where, you know, sometimes I know folks will, will kind of bang on um, like old school liturgical practices, but for the churches that utilize the incense as they come into service on a, on a Sunday morning into a worship service, it is, it's one of those kind of tangible reminders to the people present of, uh, of the beauty of our prayer life before the throne of God. Yeah, that really is beautiful. This kind of ends up with a, a, a poetic or a, a prayerful examination of what takes place there in that heavenly scene. It's in chapter five, and I've been. Do you want to? Can you just close us out with the the reading of this powerful message? Like all these beings are there, angels and all the creatures and 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 all these things that are there, giving praise to God. And the the balance of chapter five there, beginning in verse nine, if you would. Yeah, and if anybody wants to hear this beautifully sung, um, go listen to Andrew Peterson's, uh, who had who was at. Fishers United Methodist Church, not too long ago, um, but go listen to his song. Uh, wanna, is is gonna, he worthy? Sing it for us? No, no, I can't pull that off. But I will read it. All right. And so in verse nine it says, "And they sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That'll wrap us for today. And next week we'll, we'll take a look at a little more of the book of Revelation. We'll jump into the looking at these seven seals that are sealing up this scroll as they get opened and the message that uh, is behind those. We'll also take a look at a couple more of the churches. So we encourage you to continue in your own life. And if anything, I think the encouragement out of day is pray. Your prayers matter to God. They rise up to God and they count. So we encourage you to have a life, develop a life, continue a life if you have one, deepen your life of prayer so that you can participate with the praise that goes on even in heaven as we speak. 
Until next week, may God bless.